0: Welcome to the FTD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FTD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FTD events.
1: Good morning. It's Monday, January 22nd. The war in the Middle East is now 108 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. Let me start off this morning by acknowledging an error. Last Friday, instead of noting that it was 105 days into the war, I said it was 105 years I obviously didn't mean that, although I must admit that I do occasionally feel like this war is 105 years old. It's exhausting, but we're not going to let a little sleep deprivation and a Freudian slip get in the way of this show. We're going to keep giving you our best stuff three times a week here at the FTD Morning Brief. Oh, and if you want to flag any errors in the future, feel free. If you want to suggest topics for us to cover, please do. Just email us at events at FDD.org. That's E-V-E-N-T-S at FDD.org. Okay, this morning I'll be joined by Avi Saharov, one of the creators of the hit series FAUDA on Netflix. He also knows the Palestinian militant groups like The Back of His Hand. We'll be talking to him shortly. As for what's on my mind today, there's a new diplomatic initiative underway in the Middle East. The United States, Egypt, and Qatar are pushing for a complete end to the war in exchange for the release of prisoners and a clear pathway to a Palestinian state. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says that such a deal is tantamount to surrender. There is some truth to that. The PM's detractors say that he needs the war to continue so that he doesn't have to face a political reckoning in the wake of 10-7. There is a bit of truth to that too. But what bothers me here are the U.S., Egyptian, and Qatari motivations in this scenario. The U.S. wants this to end because, well, we're heading into an election cycle, and this war is not sitting well among progressives in particular. In other words, the president's principled and laudable support for Israel is slowly but surely becoming a drag on his campaign. The Egyptians, for their part, want this war to end because they don't want the instability on their borders. Fair enough. But you know what I think? I think they also don't want this war to continue because we are soon going to learn about a lot of tunnels that Egypt said didn't exist. Those tunnels have been providing Hamas with the weapons to rearm over and over again. Those tunnels have also allowed Hamas leaders to escape and return repeatedly by way of the Sinai Peninsula. And then we get to Qatar this tiny little jihad-supporting emirate, will stop at nothing to ensure the survival of Hamas, its terrorist client. Negotiating a soft landing for Hamas is exactly what Qatar has been gunning for from the get-go. Hamas gets to slaughter 1,200 people, take another 240 hostage, and then live to tell about it. That's a John Grisham ending from Qatar's perspective. I don't like the war. And I would like this one to end, but I also don't like the engines driving this diplomatic process. Just remember folks, when wars don't end on the right terms, they have a way of repeating on you, like a falafel in pita with all the fixings. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Now for your headlines. Headline one, Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar reportedly believes that Israel will give up on its wider war aims in exchange for that U.S. broker deal to release the remaining hostages. Here's what we know. Israeli intelligence can somehow still track this guy, even as he hides in tunnels beneath the fighting in Khan Yunis. They know his strategy, and they know that he wants to wait the Israelis out. This seems astute, particularly as the Israeli hostage families put more and more pressure on the government to bring those hostages home. So what's my take? The hostage families, to continue they continue to suffer in ways that I simply cannot fathom. But the Israeli government has to think about the 10 million other Israelis impacted by this war. Specifically, they need to keep those 10 million people safe. And I personally don't believe that cutting a deal for the release of hostages will guarantee that safety, unless that deal includes the voluntary dismantling of Hamas, which is not likely. So in short, the war aims of defeating Hamas and freeing the hostages appear to be increasingly in friction. There needs to be a reckoning in Israel, and I think it's coming. Headline two, Israel took out a number of Hezbollah military figures in airstrikes over the weekend in Lebanon. Here's what we know. The Israelis are piling on the pressure. Hezbollah media reports at least seven attacks in Lebanon just this morning. As the U.S. and France mount a somewhat quixotic diplomatic effort to push Hezbollah north of the Latani River, the Israelis are making lots of things go boom. And that's probably a good thing because these attacks could potentially serve as leverage to convince Iran's most most lethal proxy to, to reconsider its position. Maybe, but not likely. So don't hold your breath. So now what? Israel needs to be careful. Hezbollah does too. The Iranian proxy undeniably initiated this. It began attacking Israel on October 8th. The group has now claimed credit for more than 670 separate attacks, but these Israeli counterstrikes are also dangerous. One errant attack on either side and a wider war could be underway. That's exactly what happened in 2006. And headline three, two Navy SEALs who went missing during Iranian weapons seizure mission off the coast of Somalia earlier this month have been declared KIA. The SEALs went missing after they boarded a ship carrying Iranian advanced conventional weapons on January 11th. This is obviously terrible news. If there is an upside, it's this though. The US and the UK struck Yemen over the weekend, killing 75 militants, including Houthis, Hezbollah, and IRGC. So now what? More strikes are gonna be needed to ensure freedom of navigation in the Red Sea, but the US is also gonna have to target the Houthis enablers. That includes the neighboring country of Oman, a purported American ally that hosts the Houthi headquarters. And it also allows for smugglers to move Iranian weapons overland into Yemen. Hey, Treasury, how about some sanctions? Asking for a friend. Okay, those are your headlines. It's now time to welcome Avi Sahara to the FDD Morning Brief. I had the pleasure of knowing Avi some 20 years ago when he was a reporter here in Washington. Now he's one of the creators of the hit show Fauda on Netflix. He's doing great journalism today as well, covering Arab affairs for Ynet and Yidiot Ahronot. Welcome, Avi. Hey, John. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Let me me ask you just first, before we get going, I want to ask you about uh, Idan, uh, one of the actors on your show. I know he was injured in Gaza. How is he doing, and how is the rest of the cast and crew at Fauda after this difficult news?
0: So Idan Amedi was, well, sagi, aka sagi in Fauda, of course. So he was seriously injured something like two weeks ago. But today, in The news in Israel reported that he will be out of hospital tomorrow or the day after. So that's very good news. Excellent. Glad to hear it.
1: Okay. Now I want to ask you to put on your journalist hat, not your FAUDA hat. And and, and this is really where I want to drive our conversation today. How would you assess what is going on right now in Gaza? I know there's a lot of political debate in Israel. Is that going to have an impact right now on the trajectory of this war?
0: Look, I don't know what will happen, I must say, you know, because the political situation is not really stable. It might affect, of course, the situation on the ground. But generally speaking, I think that what we see is actually the IDF and Israel is following more or less what Washington, in a way, um, consulted the state of Israel to do, meaning to go on the, f- the third phase. So if the first one was to bomb Gaza from the air and from the outside, the second one was to go into a ground um, invasion, a ground invasion that will go basically to the northern part of Gaza, Wadi Gaza, and north till Bet Hanun and Bet The third phase means that we will pull out many of the troops that are located inside Gaza and then focus on specific operations based on intelligence. And this is what we see on the last few days in Khan Yunus. There's a lot of effort, a lot of military effort focusing on Khan Yunus' area. Why? Because this is a kind of a stronghold for Hamas. This is where Yahya Senwar and Muhammad F., the head of the military wing of Hamas, were born, including Muhammad Sinwar, the brother of Yahya Senwar. All of them were born in the refugee camp of Khan Yunis, or what was named once upon a time a refugee camp. So I guess that the focusing is aimed to get to the tunnels, the strategic tunnels that Hamas has underneath Khan Yunis, and at the same time to dismantle the battalions of the armed wing of Hamas in Khan Yunis area. It's not an easy fight. We understand that there are casualties over there. Israeli soldiers are injured, but still the operation needs to, to go on and to again to damage Hamas's military capabilities as much as possible.
1: Let me ask you this. I I was reading this morning that um, the estimates here in the US is that Israel has only destroyed about a quarter of the Hamas army so far. Um, And so when Israel moves into that next phase, assuming this is true, of course, Israel moves into that next phase where they have the army engineers working underground to destroy those tunnels, is this the moment where Hamas could launch some kind of an insurgency? Do you think Israel is prepared for something like that?
0: I think it will be very difficult for Hamas to, to go on their own initiatives, military initiatives, of course. I think that Hamas lasts around third. Okay, let's say that in between nine and 10,000 warriors or terrorists out of almost 30,000 so that doesn't include of course the ones that were injured and we're talking about thousands of more so let's say that in between third and half are either injured or killed that they're left with half of it most of them are today um, living somewhere underground either Khan Yunis or above ground in rafah rafah southern part of gaza strip very close to the border with egypt And over there, they found some kind of a safe haven. Why? Because the Israelis did ask the residents of northern Gaza to flee and to go towards south to Rafah. And over there, the Israeli army is not really attacking. From time to time, it does attack over there. But there are around 1.3 million Palestinians right now in the Rafah area. Many of them, yes, are Hamas militants dressed up as civilians, Some of them, according to some reports that we've heard, shave their beards in order not to look like Hamas. Definitely they're not on uniform. All of them are walking on civilian clothes and just trying to mingle in the local population in Rafah. So yes, that leaves Israel with trouble, of course, because we understand that we cannot right now go into a big operation in Rafah because the refugees do not have any place where to go. And the Egyptians are not that enthusiastic with the IDF coming closer and closer to the border. But to your question, I don't think that Hamas right now will go into some kind of, uh, of an operation. They are trying just to survive, especially underground.
1: And when we talk about Egypt, I, what's your sense? I mean, as the Israelis get closer to Rafah, we are hearing that the Egyptians are not happy about this. How much do you think of that underground infrastructure actually snakes into Sinai? Is there more than meets the eye?
0: I'm sure that there is. Uh, You know, we understand that the military capabilities of Hamas, many of them were produced, created in Gaza. But if to be honest here... uh, you know, one needs to, to to ask himself the question of how on earth did they get weapons from China, from North Korea, from places like that? It definitely didn't come from the air. Some of it probably made its way through the sea. But, you know, the immediate suspect or the usual suspect would be people that are working in and between the Egyptian Rafah and the Palestinian Rafah. This is one city. Let's keep that in mind. And I know that the Egyptians did destroy many of the houses on Philadelphia Road, meaning on the border area between the Palestinian Rafah and the Egyptian Rafah. And still, the smuggling did go on. Maybe for the Israeli intelligence, it wasn't something crucial, but we understand that maybe Hamas managed to maneuver us and to make us think that the smuggling wasn't heavy. At the end of the day, the Egyptians, if you ask me, and this is only my opinion. Abdel Fattah Sisi, the president of Egypt, would love to see Hamas falling apart, meaning just collapsing and not being capable of controlling the situation in Gaza. But he understands that there's a long gate, a long way to get there, and this is why he's trying to find some kind of a way that might push Hamas to the side and still keep his situation on the border relatively calm and not letting thousands of Palestinians to be tempted to cross into Egypt.
1: All right, well, let me ask you to take a look at the West Bank. I know you've done a lot of work there uh, over the years. There are a huge number of raids and arrests and targeted killings. I mean, almost every night I see reports on my uh, Twitter feed, watching in Arabic and in Hebrew, where IDF forces are operating deep in the West Bank. Can things remain calm? I mean, are, are we potentially going to see unrest there as well?
0: It is a possibility. And yes, we do have the economic factor here that kind of ring the bell and reminds us that we might deteriorate, we might get into a situation into a more deteriorated situation. I mean, before October 7th, we had around 130, maybe 150,000 Palestinian workers inside Israel every day, only from the West Bank. I'm not talking about the 18,500 that came from Gaza, of course. Right now, there are only around 8,000. I mean, just imagine to yourself the economic problem that it creates for so many people in the West Bank that are not really capable of providing their families. That creates kind of instability. That creates kind of antagonism, of course, towards Israel. And that enlarged the, the option of more deteriorating and escalation. So today, right now, we're witnessing some battles, like ongoing battles almost every night, like you said. Tulkare, Jenin, Nablus, the northern part of the West Bank. It might go south. It might get south towards Ramallah, Bethlehem, Hebron. Um, Jericho, at the beginning we had Jericho, but then it it vanished from there. But you know what? If there's one thing that still keeps me kind of optimistic is the fact that till today, although there's a huge support in the West Bank for Hamas, although we we understand that around 70% of the West Bankers did support October 7th, still the big majority of the Palestinians living in the West Bank are watching the war on TV in Al Jazeera, clapping their hands and saying bravo to Hamas, but are not going out of their houses and demonstrating against Israel or going in huge uprisings like we've seen in September or October 2000 or
1: December 1987. I guess that is good news. Um, Let me ask you one last question here before we let you go. Uh, The wider challenge of Iranian proxies, right? I mean, we we see this right now across the region. It's not just Hamas. It's not just Hezbollah. It's the Houthis It's Shiite militias in Iraq and Syria. Do you have a sense of the Israeli strategy right now to address all of these fires that have broken out across the region?
0: You know, one thing that uh, still surprised me, even after 23 years of covering the the Middle East, is that we don't really have strategy here in Israel. I mean, we do, of course, face issues, conflicts, uh, challenges like we face in Gaza, like we face in Lebanon. I don't think that there's a clear strategy right now. What do we do with the Houthis? What do we do in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon? I think that we, we're going towards an ongoing attacks in all the different places, except for Yemen, of course, that we leave it for the, the Americans. And in a way, in Iraq, that we don't get involved over there because there are no Israeli interests uh, existing in Iraq. But the feeling is that at the end of the day, and this is maybe just my feeling, I do think that there is some kind of difference between Gaza, meaning Hamas, and the Iranian threat. Yes, Hamas has been supported by the Iranians, and the Iranians would like to see Hamas, of course, killing more Israelis. But at the end of the day, it's not everything according to the Iranian interest that is being made in Gaza. And I think that the best proof for that is what happened in Lebanon, meaning Hezbollah, he is, of course, operating against Israel and bombing the northern border, but it didn't want to go into a large-scale war against the state of Israel following October 7th. In a way, my feeling is Hamas stole the show. Like Hezbollah was the bad boy of the Middle East till October 7th. And just let's keep in mind, July 12, 2006, after kidnapping and killing a few Israeli soldiers, kidnapping two and killing more, there was a whole war between Hezbollah and Israel, between Lebanon and Israel, and Hezbollah was considered to be the big resistance movement. Now suddenly comes Hamas, the small group, the small organization, killing 1,200 Israelis and kidnapping 240. So in a way, they stole the show from the Shia Hezbollah group, of course, while the Sunnah Muslim Brotherhood is the one that is taking all the glory in all over the Middle East and they weren't really coordinating this with Hezbollah. And you can hear that from Hassan Nasrallah's speech, and you could see that from the reaction made by Hezbollah. So there are some differences there, and I can only hope that there's not going to be a war vis-a-vis Lebanon, although the situation even there is not that optimistic.
1: All right, Avi, thank you for that. We're going to leave it there. Thank you again for joining the FTD Morning Brief. Thank you. Okay, here's what my FDD colleagues are tracking today. My colleague Emanuele Otolenghi has a new piece calling for U.S. sanctions on the Beirut-based media outlet Al-Mayadeen, which is closely aligned with Hezbollah. FDD's Mark Dubowitz and Toby Dershowitz spent years convincing the powers in Washington that Hezbollah's Al-Manar TV and Hamas's Al-Aqsa TV deserve to be sanctioned. The terror group cynically tried to use the First Amendment as a defense. FDD prevailed. Is Almayyadin next? It should be. My colleagues Brad Bowman and Mark Montgomery sat down with the head of Indo-PACOM to discuss China's military buildup in the Pacific and what is required to maintain deterrence. Their conversation is available via FDD's Foreign foreign Policy podcast. Brad and Mark also put out a piece in Defense News this weekend with a plan to defend against hypersonic missiles. You should check that one out. And finally, my colleagues Behnam Ben Taliblu and Rich Goldberg analyzed those long-overdue sanctions placed on the Houthis last week. Turns out those sanctions have more holes than a wedge of Swiss cheese. Come on, Mr. President. Now is the time for maximum pressure on the Iran-backed Houthis and all those other Iran proxies, maybe Iran itself too. Okay, that's it for today. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FTD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at FTD.org invest. Thank you for being with us today. I'll see you Wednesday for another exciting episode of the FTD Morning Brief. I will be joined by Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster, the former National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump. He knows war and he knows the Middle East. So tune in. And until then, I'm Jonathan Schanzer signing off for FTD.